Welcome to the At A Total Loss podcast, where lost moms candidly talk about stillbirth, baby loss, grief, survival, and all things in between. I'm Catherine. My first child, Brody, died at full term and was stillborn in January of 2022. I literally thought the sadness was going to kill me. And while trying to survive, I reached out to lost moms to connect with others who knew how I felt. It was these conversations that saved me, and to this day, they still do. We discuss our babies, life with grief. We even laugh, a lot actually. It is my hope that hearing our stories will help you realize that you are not alone in any of this, and maybe even serve as a guide to finding light in the dark. So get comfortable and grab some tissues as we discuss this crazy life after baby death that has left us all at a total loss. How are you doing with your pregnancy? I'm doing well. It's 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 been an interesting journey. It's very different than the last one, of course. And uh I seem to be having different like physical things happening, but then again it's the second pregnancy, so I'm like something wrong or is this just the second pregnancy? It's it's been wild, but I'm um, he is extremely active, so that reassures me consistently and we're down to 11 weeks. So I'm like ticking it down, but it's been quite the journey that you can't really understand until you've been in it. You know, Mm. everybody warned me. They're like, Oh, you are going to go through it. I, some people were like, I was so depressed. And I was like, you know, you know, I think it'll be okay. Like I'm ready. But then there have been some times that I'm like, Oh, that's what you guys are talking about. This is hard. It's the thing is, you can't, you can't get yourself ready for something that you don't know how it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's so because true. The, because the people that tell you what it's going to be like, that's only going to be what their experience was like. But it's not the version of Catherine post Brody. It's never going to be. Because even your third child or your fourth child will be yet another experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm so thankful for those around me because they they said to me no, they said nothing i say is going to help you but i'm just going to let you know that you're not alone in how you feel i've already done it and you can do this and that was kind of really important and i think that's that's a testament to the camaraderie in this this community because even though they we have very similar circumstances and situations they still acknowledge that they were like, look, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing that's going to fix this. There's nothing that's really going to help you that much. Just know I'm a phone call away. I've done this. You can do this too. It's possible to get to the other side. And I think that that's really helpful because a lot of times in this space, we have so many stories of loss that we focus on those. We hyper-focus on the bad, what could happen, all the opportunity, all the potential outcomes so to have other women that are like, but this could also be you. You could also get to the end of this and have a living healthy child. And I'm here to help you through the next eight and a half months. And that, that's just been so important because the expectations we set on ourselves kind of come from other people. Mm. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing, right? I mean, and you'll, you, I want to hear from you because I guess we're diving right in here. But um <clears throat> I feel as if when we start to get into the lost space in order to heal or to project our emotions and to, or excuse me, express our emotions and how we feel, hoping we get some camaraderie back or some understanding back, we also see other behaviors. And we're like, okay, well, if they're experiencing this, maybe I should be experiencing this. And and maybe sometimes we kind of set our own expectations based off what we're seeing around us. And sometimes that's just not what happens. And sometimes you're just like, no, that's not my experience. So to have someone say, I got nothing, but I'm here for you has been kind of really, really awesome. So I don't feel like an alien too much. Most of the time I don't. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. But thank you so, so much for doing this. I know it feels like a million years ago we did, we did yours, but it was like, wasn't that long ago. (laughs) No, it wasn't. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for allowing me to be in your, in your, I think, very distinctive space of lost moms through stillbirth. And in my case, it's not technically a stillbirth. My daughter lived for three days and then we decided to um, withdraw care because of the circumstances that were present. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really 
I'm really glad to be here with you and talk to those people that listen to your podcast about the things that that I have seen and heard and yeah how my journey has been for the last 11 and a half years that's the perspective it's I think a lot of the mothers that listen extremely fresh from loss and I think the number one question is how do I do this and when will this get a little bit better or Mm. a little bit easier and I think from your perspective as personally experiencing what it's like to outlive your child and then professionally experiencing it, I think the perspective is really quite invaluable because a lot of times we do seek information from other lost parents that aren't professionals in this space. They're just like me. I'm going off of sheer conversation and experience. But then to have someone like you step in and say, everything you're doing is natural. Everything you're doing is normal. You are not crazy. This is healthy. Like this is how we work through this. And number one thing is that for someone like you to say in a professional space, it's possible to be able to carry this and have joy. It's possible to have grief and joy coexist and giving permission because I think a lot of times lost parents feel the need to punish themselves, suffer in order to honor their children. And for you to say, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And giving even things that are very simple to cope is so important and giving them light at the end of it. And I think I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but then enter a professional like yourself that's like, no, 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 you can, you can do this. I think it's so wildly helpful. So 11 and a half years, I mean, can you take us back to the beginning and you could start wherever you'd like to start. It's your story. Cause I don't know how long, how often you get to tell your story because you're always listening to us, <laughs> but I want you to start wherever you'd like to start so that we can properly get to how and why you're here today. Yeah. So let's start with me wanting to become pregnant. And I was, um, deciding to have children at a later stage. I actually knew I wanted to have children, but the way it happens, it needs to be the right moment, the right man, and it needs to correlate to to work. So in my case, I was um, 40 when I decided that I wanted to have children. And my husband at the time, from not wanting to have children because he had experiences of IVF and loss in his past, suddenly turned around and said, okay. So I was, I was surprised. So we had, we became pregnant through IVF in the first round and how it was common in Australia, you implant one egg, not like in other countries where you do two. And on the first ultrasound, um, we found out that we were pregnant, but in fact, it was not just one, it was identical twins because on the ultrasound, I saw this stick figure and a little mound and I said okay so this is the placenta this is the baby and the doctor said oh no you've got twins I'm like you must be kidding and the doctor said no I wouldn't be kidding about something like that I'm like yeah that's true (laughs) so um we found ourselves pregnant with identical twins and obviously identical because there was one fertilized egg um implanted and so I'm going to skip over the the first few weeks or months but then during the 19 week scan they found the abnormalities in the kidneys of one twin. So they develop at a certain time together. So like the the genetic base is the same, but then they obviously split and how the genes turn on and off is individual. You know, we are not engineers as mom and dad. We are just the shepherds of our children. And so in our case, Ananda May was growing okay. And the Maya, her twin sister, had this, um, what they later was um, to be seen as polycystic kidney, polycystic kidneys. Therefore, um, it developed into a couple of things down the line, which turned into Potter syndrome. And because I had two, sort of the cushioning was there. If you have a single with Potter syndrome, it, it doesn't produce amniotic fluid and therefore it gets very tight in the, mm-hmm. in the space of the uterus. But in our case around, um, week 26 there was one doctor in the ultrasound who said oh you should think about palliative care and i'm like what this completely took me out of out of 
nowhere. I mean, we knew at 19 weeks, you know, you can never really tell what's really happening until you see the baby outside of the womb because you can't do an ultrasound. You can only get from the picture and the imaging that you see what's maybe going on, but you're not very sure or not always sure. But I mean, doctors have sort of their experiences and they use that to say what's going on for you. So he suggested palliative care, which totally shocked us. And we were under the clear knowing in ourselves, me and my husband at the time, that we wanted to have the baby choose their own time if there's no the necessity for me because of danger in terms of, you know, livelihood for me. And so I couldn't deal with that. So that that's when I started to grieve for the potential loss that might happen. I mean, I didn't know at the time, but I was in complete shock. I was traumatized by this person's um, comment. And basically, you know, they took us into a room and he said those things. And then he said, I give you some time. And I'm like, I was just in complete shock. And then, you know, people would see me and say, oh, you must be so excited to be pregnant with twins. And I'm like, I just couldn't really talk about it anymore because it was, um, Yes, I had these two beings inside of me, they were growing, but then I didn't know what was going to happen. And to share that news when I even didn't know exactly what was happening, it was that was really challenging. So I don't have pregnancy after loss, but I have pregnancy with anticipatory loss. Mm. I mean, obviously we found out later, but it's like, what do you do with that? And then um, 34 weeks in, at the ultrasound, the doctor, another doctor, because we didn't want to see that doctor again, again mm-hmm. said, okay, the amniotic fluid is getting tight around the Maya. Um, we'll give them a chance and we give birth to them within a few days. So they were born um, a bit premature of 34 weeks and um, 1.7 kilos and two, I don't know how much that is in ounces. Um, so they were tiny, tiny long arms. And, you know, when they are born, then that's when they can check, they can like ultrasound, they can see what's going on. And they, in Amaya's case, would see that she doesn't produce um, fluid. So therefore her renal system wasn't um, plugged in correctly. And this is part of the Potter syndrome. There's different, um, different versions of that, but I won't go into details. But anyway, in the second night, she had a prolapsed lung um, she was on CPAP and then she had a prolapsed lung. And to us, in retrospect, or after we came to the NICU and what they told us and what what it seemed to be showing, for us it was clear that she was saying, I'm ready to go. Mm. And so we withdrew care on the third day of her life, which is, um, you know, in itself a, a big thing, an unbelievable decision that you take for a child. And yeah, you never know whether you're doing, whether you're making the right decision, but based on the information we had, based on basically, you know, if a baby doesn't, isn't able to pee, then they're slowly poisoning themselves because it's not, it's not working the way it should. And they could tell that. And the distress was also, the collapsed lung was also showing that the, the lungs had not been able to develop as they did in Ananda May because of the situation. So that's that part of the loss um, in a nutshell and so i found myself being a first-time mom and at the same time first time grieving a child all at the same time so it was like a um, a situation where i was doing the split between well how do i do first-time mom and how do i do grieving a child um you know mm. it's, it's mm-hmm. all new it, it came all together as a I was completely unprepared on both sides. And, you know, I often share with people on my podcast, we don't have a lot of role models in the world that show us how to, how to do that, how to parent the non-physical child, as I like to call it. We don't have examples. I mean, we, we sometimes find um, celebrities like Chrissy Teigen, for example, sharing about her loss, which I think is great. So people see it, see the reality, but then, and that's the that's the good side of it people then are hopefully able to reintegrate back into their life and um the loss is no longer like 
big front and center in their life. Mm. I mean, that's the, for me, that would be the ideal for people to know at the beginning, it's like a tsunami that hits and I, and I use this metaphor of the box with the ball inside and there's like a grief trigger on the side and that tsunami hit the metaphorical box of your life and it's very big and at the beginning it moves and all the time it's getting activated by this grief activation here on the side but with time and that would be the, the ideal for me is that your life around that impact grows so it's not that the loss gets any smaller, but yeah. actually what we would hope is that the life, you get more life experiences, you add to your life to the point where the ball doesn't make up or isn't as, as seemingly big because your life has enlarged. Mm. And, then, and that's when you then return to life. You know, you, in your experience, you have other you know have another pregnancy so you relate to life in a different way i mean brody is still is still quite near and quite close but with not time being the healer but with time so in my case 11 and a half years the perspective in relation to that ball changes mm. yeah mm. so that's how i see you know and i see 11 and a half years as as a way to look back to say okay it, healing is possible in that if we define what healing means mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and with healing i mean the ing word the process and not the healed you know mm -hmm. with an mm -hmm. end point i mean in my case you know <clears throat> I, I i almost find myself hesitant to say that four and a half months later my mother died from suicide because then people go oh my god but the reality is that challenges and losses happen in our lives and not just losses but traumas you know, in all people's life. Just the other day, I heard um, David Kessler's story where he shared that in his first 13 years of life, he lost his mom, there was a shooting, they lost their house in a, in a hurricane, and he was sexually abused. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, adverse childhood experiences that we all experienced, like divorce being one of them. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. we all, you know, when we come to that significant loss, so in your audience, it's a stillbirth, there's a lot that has happened before that, which mm -hmm. is your grief, your personal grief history. So I go over here in the past. So a lot of other experiences have shaped how you see and interact with that, which is happening right now. Mm -hmm. That's your personal grief history. That's grief myth, which are bound. You can't avoid them. And also you know, cognitive distortions, as you mentioned, one of them before, like catastrophizing. And so those cognitive distortions, we bring them. It's this, these are the ways we see life. I use the metaphor of like glasses that are broken and you mm. always see the world through those broken glasses. You think, oh, there's a line there, but it's not in the reality. It's in your way of looking or interacting with the world. Yeah. And they get strengthened or they get more intense or more ingrained when you've experienced a trauma or a loss well i want to go back i haven't actually had twin loss on the podcast yet um and i want to actually go back to how you were hoping during the pregnancy knowing the inevitable but also trying to stay healthy and trying to I guess not give up on the other twin that was healthier. How did you manage that? And well, let me back, let me ask one more question leading up to that. Had you already been a mental health professional before this all happened? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So were you taking care of people who had maybe already experienced this type of thing? So my specialty before I had my, I was pregnant was relationship related issues. So that okay. included divorce, um, breakup, um, separation. And in that I had women who lost a child. So I had dealt with it. It wasn't my specialty in terms of it was grief related, I have to say, um, but not necessarily um, grief and loss the way that I'm or grief and trauma the way that I'm focusing on it now. So your other question was, how did I deal with that? You know, <laughs> I thought that from my training and I was specialized in grief and loss because that had I had a fascination for me in life death had a fascination prior to those experiences but I see it like a preparation so I was trained in that 
But, you know, cognitive knowledge is nothing like personal experience. Mm. So it, it might give you a cognitive view on what's happening, but then having to go through is, is another topic, you know, and I, I use the, the four categories model in terms of of helping people, supporters and grievers to speak the same language. And what that four categories model is, if you think about an axis on the bottom and um, vertically, and on the on this axis is from not bereaved to bereaved. Mm. Now, people on the left side would be um, not having any loss experience or minor loss experiences, whereas on the other side, they have loss experience, significant loss experience or multiple loss experience. And then from the bottom to the top, people have no support experience or are not naturally supportive to then on the top people who have either support training or are experienced in support or are natural good supporters. So if you have those then, so it's not a need like four boxes, but as, as part of the um, model, we can see that there's the non-bereaved non-supporter on the bottom left. And then there's the bereaved supporter on the top right. So people like me who are who work in that field, I have a personal experience, but I'm also trained in in psychology to support someone like that. Why was I saying that? There was a question that you asked. But yeah, <laughs> um, so for me, my personal experience, the training doesn't help you on, well, how do I'm going to do grief? I mean, I still knew exactly quite early on from the beginning that I needed someone to work with me. Mm. So when I've given birth, we went to a grief group in the hospital immediately after that. But we were sort of the odd ones out, right? Because their parents who had stillbirth, who lost their baby. So there were parents who were wanting to be parents who had no baby. So mm. there comes us. We had a baby at home. Um, my sister was there looking after her, but um, we had a baby. So you sort of don't belong yeah. to the to the club of no baby, but you also don't belong to the club of um, not being pregnant. So it was weird. But then afterwards, I saw a therapist. I knew exactly that I needed to have a sounding board just for me. Mm. And I could also tell, you know, my, my then husband, he was dealing it in a different way. I mean, there were couples there in the hospital, which was great because there you can see the, the differences in people's way of grieving, instrumental or cognitive grieving. And I could also, and he could also hear other men share or other women, not to say that men always share the same way. It's not like that. But I immediately had personal support, which was in retrospect, the best thing I could do for myself, because then when four and a half months later, my mother died from suicide, I don't know how I would have handled that. Did I not have someone there that I could just ring up and say, you know what, this just happened. Now I'm completely, yeah, completely out of everything. Does that answer your question about how yes. did I do with it? Yeah, because I, I, I think that, like you said, you're a category within a category within a category, and it's almost niche, even nicher, even nicher, even smaller to anticipate a living child, but also knowing that you're going to have to live without one of them and getting too far ahead in the future. So I think, I think what I want to provide a little bit is maybe for those who have experienced twin loss is you know, you're probably getting gifts for two and you probably went shopping, but only bought one. And, you know, you were getting one of everything because you knew one wasn't going to, I mean, that is horrible. And being having to go through all of those things and not really have any reference of outlet on another maybe mother who had the same experience was probably extremely challenging. Mm. And at you times, know, even your own professionalism was probably like, I got nothing. This is mm. hard, you know? Honestly, you know, and I can relate because many people tell me that, like many of my clients say, I felt like I'm sure I'm the only one that this has happened to, mm. but it's not the case. You know, there's groups on Facebook for twinless twin and parents who have experienced that. Um, but at the moment, this is how grievers usually feel. They feel like, oh my God, I'm so alone. No yeah. one has experienced that around me. Um, but you know, I realized that I didn't really answer your question because when I was pregnant, so we knew that something wasn't just completely peachy, but I mean, a lot of people who have a stillbirth know nothing until it happens. Right. But then when we had some uncertainty, uh, we were still hopeful and 
when we were pregnant, you know, when you have twins, they say twin A or B or one and two, they refer to them as, as, as numbers or letters. And then we got sick of just calling them by, by numbers or letters. And we picked some cards or my, my husband suggested, why don't we pick two cards out of an angel deck? And I'm like, really? Okay. So Amaya's name in utero was hope. So the mm. card that we picked was hope. And Ananda May, my daughter is now eleven and a half. Her name was passion. And it's very aptly. It's very, oh, wow. So in terms of hope, it was interesting because one of the things that I did was I wrote notes at the time on Facebook. We didn't have blogs at the time or I didn't know how to do that. And because I was like speechless with how do I deal with that? How do I answer people's question? I wrote notes. And one of them was um, titled how to not lose hope in the face of potentially losing hope. So, you know, in terms of your question, we had everything for two. We had bought a new car that would fit two car seats. We had two car seats. I had a double stroller. Besides a crib, we just had one because at the beginning we wanted them to be in one crib. But, you know, all of these things, they're like um, salt in the wound when you then walk around mm. with one child on a double pram. It's, 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 mm. so I gave it back. I, I had to exchange it because it was just too much. And I gave the second car seat away, things like that. And, you know, so it is, it is very hard because you have this one living child. And in my case, I can always imagine, um, her sister here with us. And I mean, my daughter says, I wonder what it would be like if Amaya was here. I mean, she lives that in her own way as well. But as a as a twinless twin mother, and I've, I've had a lot of people um, come to me because of that specific case, it is this thing of, well, I should have two, but I have one. Mm. And so continuously arguing with reality, because the reality is, here is one alive. And one child is not physically but it's there you know my my daughter always refers to her sister and i think that's healthy because that is part of her history the same way as i refer to my mother even though she's no longer physical is still my mother doesn't change the fact that mm -hmm. the same way as brody brody will always be your first child mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. will always be the older brother yeah how have you managed to teach your daughter now about her sister without her feeling any sort of guilt. Like I, I'm the one that survived. I'm the one that, or have, is she not old enough yet to maybe process that type of feeling yet where she feels, mm -hmm. why did I survive? What, what did I do? Did that ever happen when she, when she was a kid or? It's interesting. I never thought about that. It hasn't come up as a topic. She That's never, wonderful. <laughs> she never so far feels any survivor guilt or hasn't so far. And, you know, it, it, in, her, in their situation, it was also not um, the case that one for the other or it wasn't twin to twin transfusion where one takes more than the other. So it was never a topic and it also never came up as a topic for her. But in terms of teaching her about or um, accepting her or with, with her grief, it's, it's interesting because we, you know, for example, around the birthday, we celebrate both of their birthdays. Um, more so me for me, I, I memorialize um, both of my daughter's birth because I've given birth to two and so and then also the third day is is her death anniversary and we always sort of i don't want to say celebrate that but how do you say that we we, we make a mark in time for that and you know my daughter and that's depend that's age dependent and i and you can tell what children at different ages will sort of portray for example when she's asked um do you have any siblings she always names her three siblings three so she has her twin sister maya and then i had two miscarriages after that which she always talks about however now she's she's been um faced with people saying oh you shouldn't always tell that story when people ask you and i had to really clearly state that i do not agree with this notion 
I am under the firm opinion that my daughter can choose what she says. She needs to learn to be with the reaction that comes. I mean, kids sort of go like, what? But adults have a certain belief and that's based on their grief myth or their conditioning, cultural conditioning on what should be said and what you shouldn't say. But the reality is that she has siblings. I mean, in my case, I definitely mentioned my two girls that I've given birth to. The others are more personal to me and I don't choose to share them with everyone. It's it, they're mine, you know, but I've given birth. I have pictures of two babies on my chest. It's very obvious that I had twins. So for her, it has developed, you know, like the first time that she openly grieved, not for her sister, but for something else was when she had her fifth birthday mm. or fourth. And I'm not sure. I must, I must look at the photos. But anyway, it was a birthday. And that was the first time that she actually grieved and she grieved for the party being over. Oh, wow. And it's, it's very timely in terms of children's grief, understanding and how it develops. And at that time, she sat on my lap and she was crying for about half an hour. And I said, what's going on? She said, I'm so sad. The party's over and it's going to be another year until the next party. And Luckily, I was then, you know, from my personal and professional training, aware enough to let her have her experience mm. and not um, try and fix it or fade it or um, try and get her away and, you know, to keep her busy with something else. No, I just let her have her experience until the point when she said, okay, mom, can we do something else? I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, you know, because yeah emotions are there but they're not there forever you know yeah. and that's i think important for people who are quite early in their loss yes at the beginning in raw acute grief it's intense and most likely it's the most intense experience that you will have ever had in your life so far and probably also looking into the future and that is hard that is intense and that's why people want it to be over or at least lessen but i always see there's this purpose for this pain because the pain i don't want to say it's it's good to have the pain but the pain is the reflection of the love and the connection with that person mm -hmm. and when that person is no longer physically there your love doesn't have a physical home to go to mm -hmm. and that is painful that is hard no, full stop period there's nothing that can remedy that. You know, we're always living in option B. Mm. Because if I ask someone who comes to me for sessions, what do you wish to um, talk about in this session? Or what do you wish if I, if I ask it more general? I wish my son to come back. You know, that's op option A, but we live in the reality of option B. Mm. With, a, with yeah. a loss, it's always option B. So... Oh, it's always option B. That's so interesting because we don't have option A at all. So basically, we just have to learn how to live with it. <laughs> we just have to find the tools. We have to find resources like yourself. And we have to continue to try to just carry it with us. How we want to carry it is up to us. But I think the majority of us want to live a good life because that's the kind of parent or mother we want to be. So choosing option B to continue to live with it and figure out what that new reality looks like is extremely difficult for a lot of people to let go of the previous reality, to let go of the previous self. For me, right after, I just wanted to say, hey, if I do enough work, if I get better, can I go back to how things work? Will I go back to myself, my old self? Will I go back to my old reality? And the answer is no. You have, you cannot go back. So you have to proceed forward with this new reality, but learning what that looks like, learning who you are now, learning what you need now, who you want around you now is such a huge part of the journey. And it's, it's a lot of work. It's really hard, especially when you're mourning, you're grieving, you're trying to understand. I think the first thing I did was say, what the hell's grief? And what do you mean I got to live with it? This is a part of me now that makes no sense because I was the type of person that was like, I have an issue. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to fix it. And then it's going to be fine. But to learn that it's not going anywhere was challenging. It was like, mm. okay, okay. As soon as I accepted that, it was like, okay, 
So you're telling me grief isn't going anywhere. I picture like this little annoying little shadow just like around you all the time. That's what I did at first. And I was like, oh, there's this little, little shadow or this little storm cloud all the time. But then I realized that wasn't it at all. Exactly like you said, it's a reflection of my love for my son that he existed. Without grief, there's no proof that he existed. That means I don't love him. He didn't, he didn't happen. But with grief, I can prove that he existed. And so learning how to not hate my grief, but understand my grief, befriend my grief, bring it with me, that was another level of the journey. And it, it comes in phases and time. And, and uh, now pregnant again, what is that going to look like for my child? So you had to immediately figure out how exactly. I'm going to, to teach my daughter, immediately figure it out. And that must have been extremely challenging to make those decisions because there's, there's no really right or wrong, but there's probably some really wrong things you could have said to her, you know, but it sounds like you, you jumped right in and you taught her about her daughter and didn't hide it from her. I mean, I taught her about her sister and didn't hide it from her. And I love that you have given her the opportunity to carry the grief, however she would like to, even at her younger age. Mm -hmm. so that's an important lesson to learn, I think, especially, I mean, really early, some people can say it's too early, but I don't think so, because I think a lot of us want to teach our children immediately about their sibling. And when you teach them about your sibling, you're going to teach them about sadness, you're going to teach them about death and teach them about grief. That's just part of the package. Mm. You know, in my case, uh, with them being the same age or mm. born at the same time, I mean, obviously, my daughter, Ananda May, she required me to be her mother, breastfeed, um, change nappies and so forth, all these normal things. She required me to be there in some form. And she didn't understand at the beginning, as you would maybe think an older child would see the mother being sad and sort of understand, okay, she's grieving, what's going on? She's she's not able to be there for me. So for my little baby, I was, as much as I could, I was there and I had support around me. Um, so I, I had some time until she became conscious enough. So my grief was growing up. I see my grief as a baby mm. and I see my grief as a baby that is growing up. And at the beginning, it needs me all the time. Mm. It it needs me to to be there for it when i'm exhausted even when i can't anymore it requires my attention but the more it ages or the more it grows up the less it needs me and at certain moments i might like it a little bit closer but um my daughter says no mom i'm going off by myself and i'm like because you know if we're because in in yours in your description of your grief there's actually a third stage it's not just grief is my love for my child but then afterwards it's what can my love for my child that is not physical look like if it's not just painful grieving mm. Mm. and that's then another step because often people have this connection this coupling what i call between pain equals connection grief painful grieving is the connection to my loved one but if that's the only connection then there's basically as some people would call it grief is grief is a life sentence and i do not experience and i do not believe that it's not my experience some other people this is their experience and this is what they um experience maybe that's what they want to experience but my ex my experience is about transforming the grief and integrating the grief to a place where how do i live my life that doesn't that that lives the paradox of both children so, that i can give both of my children something of me and obviously a living child gets more of my day-to-day -day attention than a non-physical child that's that's because that's how it's required because mm. my daughter now needs me to help her with schoolwork or with um with breaking up from her boyfriend or things like that where my dad child doesn't need me in that capacity right. but still i need to figure out for myself well how do i want to live that you know like for example how do i want to take her on my travels on holiday if mm. i want that or how do I want to symbolize her maybe in a new home or in a new environment? And that's the thing that gets to be learned as we age with our grief or mm. as our grief ages with us. 
So there, would you say there's, there's a difference? Well, there, there is an obvious difference, grieving their death and celebrating their life and trying to find the, how you're going to do both of those. Uh, it's all coming from love, like you said, and how you're going to carry them on, like using the word celebrate, using the word honor, using the word symbolize. I think that a lot of people don't realize we can use those words. We can use those words to acknowledge their existence, to acknowledge that they were alive in order to die. The grief, I think, is coming from the fact that they're not here, that something bad happened. Maybe the fact that they did die, um, there's, their physical presence isn't here, and that's what we're mourning. So being able to kind of understand the difference between the two, I think, is 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 a challenge. Is that kind of what you're you're saying to to not necessarily let the grief, the sadness, the death represent the love that you have for your child, but figuring out how to represent it in a way that honors, symbolizes, and celebrates as you move through life, going on vacations, how are you going to bring them with you without having that sadness, that suffering, that pain? I think it's always going to be attached, but I think that eventually with time, it won't be, it won't be a little baby anymore. Just like you said, Hmm. it'll be more of an adult that doesn't need it. And then I think it shifts. I think in the very beginning, like you said, it's a little tiny baby and then you have little glimpses of, of, of happy, of light. And then it starts to shift. And then, you know, the happiness maybe becomes the baby. I don't know. That is getting like way deep, but, (laughs) but um, it definitely has its phases. And I think trying to figure out what your grief looks like in relation to how you honor and separating the two, do you think there should be a separation between the two things, the grief and the honoring and the happy and the, the, the pain? I'm not sure if you can separate it neatly, but Mm. Or the, maybe an example will do justice to your question or what you've been saying is that um, so if we're going in, along with the analogy of my grief growing up and it's now 11 and a half years old. So it in my experience, my grief doesn't take as much of my attention on a daily basis. So there's if I look back to my last year. There's one significant moment where I did a podcast episode with my ex-husband and we looked at 11 years of grief. And it was a fascinating conversation because we took the time and we both shared with each other what it looks like now. And I heard things from him that I didn't know because it's not something that he shares just like on a daily conversation now. And also that's where I remember the last time or one of the last times that I got really sad because obviously I was I was giving that topic space and time in my life. I was parenting Amaya in that time. We were parenting, taking a time to parent her. And then if I go forward in time, there's another time just more recently, about two months ago, I came across this song and it's it's called Memory Lane. And it, I came across it on Instagram and just hearing the words she sang and I had like a crying, a sobbing and I had because I had an insight and the insight for me was that like it, the song says, I walk down memory lane because this is the place where I meet you. Mm. And I made a, a reel with that sharing pictures and an understanding that I got in that moment is why am I still talking about my daughter? Because that's the place where I meet her. Mm -hmm. And I get goosebumps when I talk about this, because this song in the moment, I was just listening to the song and the words just made this big realization come and I used it. And that was that was a moment when that 11 year old child, that grief child, just needed me to say, okay, here, here is something. And, you know, I always see it that those activations of grief are always um, showing you where on the map there is something that is still to be met. Mm. Yeah, whenever, whenever there is a sadness, it's like, okay, here, have a look at that, nurture that, give that some time. And obviously at the beginning, when you're in raw acute grief, There's a lot of times when you feel that there's a lot of moments when you don't have those experiences with the child that you would wish. And then when you come into into a bit like a bit further out from acute or early grief, which I call practiced grief, you sort of get used to it. You see the wave coming 
and you can decide to walk out of the sea or dive under or just brace it. So then you sort of get practiced to your activations and stuff. Like, for example, for me, still seeing a twin trolley or seeing identical twins is still mm -hmm. a bit like, I wanted to have that experience. And I still, I still have that. And that's okay to have. And it's not, so I would, I want to term sadness as, as you shouldn't have sadness because sadness comes whether you want it or not. But then when we come into what I call seasoned grief a little bit later on, that's when the gaps between those waves increases and also the waves are not usually as high. However, that wave that I just expressed with that song, it was a sneaky wave that came from behind and just mm. made mm. me all wet. I didn't see it coming, but that's not the problem. It's the, it's the question of how do I then be with myself in that? Because it's like, uh, in a literal sense, it would be my 11 year old daughter now coming to me, having just broken up with her boyfriend and being extremely sad. Mm. I also wouldn't have expected that, but I'm just here to be with her, to to be present in what there is. And maybe we're both sad because it's her first experience. And I can remember that in myself. But then it's the question, how can I be there with me for myself? Mm. I want to go back. You said you said you spoke to your ex-husband mm. and this may be a completely other podcast <laughs> so you you came from a space of helping relationships and then you were in a situation where you were with a in a relationship with somebody who was hesitant because they had already been through IVF procedures before and then you found yourself in this horrific nightmare situation did you then see kind of yourself then going through a lot of the same things that you were coaching other couples on before. And what did all of that do to your relationship? And then moving after forward, like forward after that, how did this impact your relationship? And did you have the tools for that? Or were you almost hyper-focused on it because you could read the symbols, you knew what could potentially happen based off of the clients that you had been working with? We don't really talk about relationships a lot. And I think that is a really important factor to all of this because there is another person. And like you said, your ex-husband didn't really express anything over the last 11 and a half years. And a lot of mothers are like, what's wrong with my husband? He doesn't care. Or what's wrong with my partner? And I'm like, they're just different. They're just completely different. So what did, basically the question is, what did all of this do to your relationship and how did your professional experience kind of help or hinder that? Mm. So I want to put a caveat there. So I want to give him justice. He did express his grief um, early on, but because we have been separated now for three years or yeah, three years, four years, um, in the last few years, obviously there wasn't a lot of conversation on how do you feel now about it? And so he did express in the beginning, but in his own way again, mm -hmm. still, I mean, for me, it being my professional work and me being an expressive person, I needed to talk about it in some form or, or, or put something out there. So I wrote the first book that I wrote in the second year. It's called Grieving Parents Surviving Loss as a Couple. And I wrote that um, because someone said to me, oh, you should write a book. And I'm like, me? about what and why, but because of how I shared in the Facebook notes, people said, oh, thank you so much. It's really good. And I didn't do it because of that. I just needed to make myself or to express myself, but not talk to people, not to then be met with their comments immediately. I just wanted to deposit it there and then people could read it. So that's then it turned out to become the first book. And I did not have that idea of writing a book. But before when I was writing a book, I was thinking, what would I write about? And so my relationship expertise came together with the loss. And I was interviewing people on how did you deal with the loss in your relationship? And it was specifically for grieving parents. But in my relationship, I, you know, there's this whole notion about so many couples divorce after the loss of a child. And I'm like, well, how many couples divorce anyway? Mm. And uh, this this is my personal opinion. I don't believe that the loss is responsible for any divorce. It's life happening because the person that you are when the loss happens 
in relationship is not based on the loss it's based on your life before yeah but the loss is something really traumatic and this is also why it changes you personally irrevocably and it's it's a, it's a stress that happens to both of you at the same time and then that's intense for a marriage in any case you know often you might have one partner going through a job loss or their parent dies but it's the same impact the same tsunami hitting both at the same time mm -hmm. but those people react totally different to the loss because their loss history is different to theirs um, their cultural norms and everything the way that they uh, think about emotions and how to express them or not what they have been taught it's completely different and then also the relationship from a father to the child and from the mother to the child is different now especially when you have a stillbirth because you as a mother have been caring and the father has sort of seen the child grow but not not had a physical connection mm -hmm. besides rubbing the belly or or talking to the child like that so it's a completely different relationship in itself already at that time mm -hmm. but in my case you know we separated not because of the loss so i do not connect these two together mm. it's it's life happening in a relationship where you come to the point where you say you know we like each other we're good parents together but we're not a couple anymore mm -hmm. and that realization takes a few years and loss changes people significantly you know and the way the change that you experience and your husband will be different because like personally in my case it was that he was an optimist and he became a realist mm -hmm. I, this is just broad broad strokes here I was a realist and I became a little bit more more realistic or maybe more grim realistic not not pessimistic but for interesting him, yeah that was a big change that that you know even though he had losses before in the sense that they their IVF didn't work so I didn't have a stillbirth or a loss in that sense but this loss made him say I don't want you to get pregnant again so we had two more losses after that but it was just too much to handle for him and he expressed that um but you know things like that so then what do you do with that because one person is traumatized in their way and the other person is traumatized in their way and you still have to sort of um make this work together and you're not always down at the same time but sometimes you are mm. and you know your partner is not responsible to pick you up all the time mm, that's, that's not their response even though you might have promised each other that in your vows but it's 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 not reality that's so interesting i think on that note it's not their responsibility to pick you up but i hope that they make sure that they don't bring you down at the same time yeah finding that common ground where the communication works whether you don't rely on them or not but unfortunately sometimes i think the partner gets frustrated because it is a loss for them but it's something not in their control it's it's us, it's our bodies, it's happening to us. And not even just the loss, but watching us go through so much suffering, I think is really challenging for a partner. Mm. And for them to not have the weight on them to bring us up, I think is really important. I think we also can't put that pressure on them. We can't direct our attention towards them to bring us up. Like you said, I really like that you said that. But at the same time, I would really hope that a partner doesn't, their actions just don't make things worse at the same mm. time. And I you think know, that's important. The three main things that people said, so in, in preparation for the first book, I, I made a survey and people, I asked people, what are the main three things that you think would be important for you to survive as a couple, the loss, to survive loss as a couple? And there were three things that stuck out. They say, understanding the differences in grieving and accepting the differences in grieving and giving the other person time and space to do their own version of grief. Mm. So those three things, they're quite essential, quite basic, but it's the basis of grieving as a couple for the loss of your child. And even if it's, if it's another loss, it might be, it's still the question of how does this person grieve and can I accept that for what they, what they show, for what they are, without needing to fix or fade or remedy it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
So not That's bring so down, important. but also not say, oh, don't be so sad. It really brings me down. No, if there is this sadness, if they, if one person is very emotionally expressive, you know, I want to say that it's important as well, because emotional expression is not the only and the right way to grieve. It's important for me to say that because people have sort of the preconceived idea that, oh, he never cries, he never expresses grief. Well, you can grieve in another way that is equally effective. Mm -hmm. So not to say that everyone needs to a speak and cry to do it right. It's not the case. It's just different versions. Emotional grieving and cognitive grieving looks in a different way, but still a person deals with it just in a different way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You said some really incredible things on this podcast that I think are going to be extremely helpful. So I'm very appreciative for you to be so open about your personal experience and not go all professional on us, (laughs) but (laughs) it's so important, you know, and you've said some really amazing things that even helped me in this conversation. So thank you so much. Um, I want to leave with how can um, you be reached if somebody wants to have a session, if somebody wants to purchase your book, uh, where can they find all of these wonderful things? This how to contact you? Yeah, basically it's all on my website, nataliehimmelrich.com. So with a TH and there's also for your listeners, there's the grieving, grieving support network that I have founded years ago when I wrote the first book, the grieving parents surviving loss as a couple. And that is also a website is called grievingparents.net. And it's also on Facebook and you know, there's also a really good support group, which people have um, gained a lot of um, friendships or peers for different losses. And it's called Maybe All Heal and it's on Facebook. It's a peer support group. So it's people supporting one another. Um, so, but that can also all be found on nataliehimmelrich.com. Okay. And I'm going to link that in the description. So make it, make life a little easier for those listening. Lord yeah, knows, We don't want to make it more challenging so they could just click listen, on that. <laughs> you know, lots of people listen to the podcast and find that already helpful. There's a lot of free resources out there already. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's also people's livelihoods. Like David Kessler said something interesting the other day. He said, um, you know, there's this notion or this idea that grief work should be free when, And he said, well, I also have electricity bills and I also pay my rent and I also have to pay my food. And, you know, just as a last parting word for people to understand that people do this kind of work and and the work that you do as well. um, And they still have their lives and it's not because they want to gain or they want to make money off people's pain. But hopefully people have found a calling within themselves. And in my case, it, it was from before my losses already. And they have been able to bring um, relief to people with what they're doing, but it's their job. It's, it's, it's their passions, hearts, job and work, and they're still there to support them through life. And for someone like you to, to dedicate your life, because it's not easy talking about loss every mm-hmm. single day. It's not. The, the easy thing would be to not talk about it at all and pretend like it didn't happen or to just say, yes, I lost my child and I'm moving forward. But you talk it all day long to help people. Unfortunately, there are things that cannot be done to save our babies. So then, but we still have to live life and we still yeah. have to figure out how to do that. And you are such a great tool and such a great resource. And I always find such comfort in speaking to you about your just your tone and your 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 demeanor and the way that you speak is just so comforting and it makes sense when you talk. So you're very skilled at this and you know that <laughs> you've been doing this for a long time, but I, I think you're an invaluable resource to the community, regardless of the type of child loss that we have. And mm. there, we all have one thing in common. We're just living life without them. And that's what exactly. brings us all together. Yeah. yeah. You're no, the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for I love talking to you. I mean, the same goes to you. The, Thank the you. kind of understanding that you bring to people and then the authenticity and the naturalness in which you do that, it just really reaches people. I mean, when I when I see how you because what we're doing basically is is educating the bigger world, not just the people grieving, hopefully, but also the people surrounding us who don't understand why is this person still talking about her child who's dead for X weeks, months, years, doesn't actually matter. And it's for us to teach these people, you know, that's normal given the circumstances. That is okay. It's nothing to be worried about. 
And that's, that's wonderful. That's such a good point. People, I think a lot of lost parents go to like their mothers or their sister or their friends or whomever it may be and just say, listen to this. That's just a glimpse into our minds exactly. and our hearts trying to understand us and try to normalize that we are a group of people that exist. Yeah. Oh, so I love it. Well, thank you again so much. And, and, I, well, and we're going to talk soon. Yes. Yes. That's all for this episode of the At A Total Loss podcast. If you'd like to help other lost moms benefit from our stories, please share, rate, and comment wherever you are listening. Thank you for being the strong mama that you are. And remember, when things have you at a total loss, we're here to help you find the light in the darkness. Take care, lost moms.